Well, good afternoon, and thank you very much for being here again this afternoon. I certainly want to thank the congregation, the elders in particular, and Brother Doug for the invitation to be here. It's been a joy. You have, I believe, a great congregation, and I certainly am praying that God will bless you as you continue to take the message to this community and to others. I, it doesn't go unnoticed to me having been in the mission field as long as I have, to see your bulletin boards. And I did go and look at them very carefully, and I appreciate your outreach very much. Keep it up. Press on with the gospel. This is the last of the three lessons, and basically I will be, a, a chapter of the book that I indicated this morning uh, is dedicated to this particular idea of postmodernism. Now, in the two earlier lessons, we've been talking about the pattern in the Bible, and we've been talking about our own departures from it. But in this last lesson, we're going to be talking about what's happening in the religious world around us. And many times, what happens in the religious world around us influences us. And that is certainly happening in this case. I hope you keep up with what's going on in the religious world. You need to. We can do a better job of reaching out to people when we know what's going on in the religious world around us. Well, here's an example. The cover story of the April 17, 2006 Newsweek had a, a big article, a lead article called The Kingdom of Christ. The author was a fellow by the name of Jay Tolson. And Tolson quoted a University of North Carolina professor, James Tabor, and he had written a book, and this book was called the, Je the Jesus Dynasty, Hidden History of Jesus. And in that book, Tabor said, Jesus, uh, he said that when Jesus' whole history is known, if it ever is known, that uh, then we will have a whole different view about Jesus and his message and his mission. Tolson therefore concludes his article on page 55 of that particular Newsweek by saying, None can claim, therefore, to find the real or true man. He is talking about Jesus Christ. You just can't really find him. He says, as a matter of fact, Jesus' real purpose might have been not to found a religion at all. Now, how does that strike you? He says, possibly what he really came to do was to establish, quote, a worldly royal dynasty, page 50 of that particular article. But does he therefore conclude that we shouldn't therefore worship Jesus since we can't know anything about him? And we don't know what his purposes were? He might have had selfish motives? No, indeed, that's not his conclusion at all. He says all of this confusion about who he was, that is, about who Jesus was and what he wanted, listen, this is word for word, is a part of his enduring powers and mystery. So you ought to go ahead worshiping. You don't know who he is, don't know what he wanted. He probably just was very selfish and wanted to found a royal kingdom. But it's fine for you to be one of his followers. By the way, that is a prime example of what's called postmodernism, as it plays out in human thought in our society today. Well, we talked a little about it earlier, but now let's go back and give some more detail. Let's try to define postmodernism. Very hard to do. But what is postmodernism? Obviously, postmodernism presupposes modernism, that is, a period precedent to postmodernism that was called modernism. Most would say that the era of modernism lasted to somewhere between 1980 and 2000, somewhere in that period 
get kind of injured and, and we took over with postmodernism or it gave way to postmodernism. Modernism, back before 1980, was characterized by the belief that man is capable of, quote, arriving at truth in all arenas through scientific inquiry. And it was characterized by believing that truths are absolute, believing you could know what truth is. And also it believed that men could reason about reality and come to a just conclusion. That was modernism, but that is now past in our society. And then we pass to postmodernism. Again, how is it defined? Well, Myron Pinner, who is a postmodernist, he says it is, quote, and he's probably pretty close, as close as anybody can get, it is, quote, an intellectual attitude or frame of mind that shapes the style and substance of thought and provides one with a starting point for reflection. End of quote, page 17 of his particular book. I don't know how much you know yet. Probably not very much. Well, let's see if we can do any better. A writer named Downing rightly says that postmodernism has one basic assumption, quote, that the way we see reality depends on our perspective and that our perspective is molded by situatedness, end of quote. They throw around those big terms. You think they must be a lot more intelligent than I am. Somebody says, God himself would sometimes listen to some of these things and say, huh, what's really going on here? They use terms like that to intimidate people. By situatedness, if you can ever get them to define it, they mean your particular situation, your different situation that causes you to view things differently than somebody else, than others do. Some would say that your, your particular situation gives you your particular truth. And others may have a different situation and therefore a different truth. Now they very well might contradict each other, but don't worry about that. That's postmodernism. Postmodernists refuse to be restricted by any one system of religion. As Dennis McCallum has, says, has said, they oppose any, quote, religious tradition or philosophical system that commits acts of cultural, cultural tyranny by promoting the fiction that all knowledge reduces to a set of universally applicable truths." End of quote. Now, in other words, they tolerate a truth, but never the truth. They welcome you into the arena of reasoning with your truth, as long as you understand there are lots of other truths, and they well may be contradictory. And no one should bow to your truth, and you shouldn't bow to anybody else's truth, because everybody has a right to his own truth, even though they are contradictory. Obviously, when fully accepted, such a philosophy puts one, as we used to say in my part of Missouri, up a creek without a paddle. In fact, Brother Phil Sanders has well said, it puts one, quote, adrift on a sea of uncertainty, not having a north star to guide him or an anchor to secure him. He does not know where he has been, where he is now, or where he's going. And he will not let anyone else tell him. He is insulted if anyone questions his right to drift. He may affirm his own plans as right and good, but will not allow anyone to criticize or deny them. He will not judge anything as right or wrong, nor will he tolerate any intolerance. This is a commitment to absolute moral and doctrinal freedom to do and say anything you want to do or say. He has set himself adrift on a sea 
without the eternal foundation of God. Very well said. In summary, while atheists deny God, postmodernists just simply ignore God. They just act like he's not there at all. That is postmodernism as embraced by much of our society today, and that's one of the reasons we have trouble teaching people the truth. In fact, now let's come on with me and let's note in the second place the impact of postmodernism on the Bible for those who embrace postmodernism. The Bible, of course, tells us that Jesus was Emmanuel. That is, being interpreted the Son of God, God with us. Matthew, the first chapter and verse 23. Well, how do postmodernists view Jesus? Well, you've already seen it. As Jay Tolson says in that Newsweek article, there are so many truths about Jesus that you can't really know whether Jesus desired a spiritual kingdom or maybe a worldly royal dynasty. Certainly, he couldn't be the perfect son of God, according to postmodernism. In the second place, the Bible tells us that Judas betrayed his Lord. And he turned aside to go to his own place. You've read that in Acts the first chapter, right? Acts 1 and verse 25, which certainly means the torment of hell in the Bible. But J. Tolson says it may well be that Judas was, quote, get it now carefully, page 52, really a hero and not a villain at all. He probably didn't do anything wrong. In fact, Tolson insinuates that Jesus may have used in what I would say is the basis sense you can use a person to try to attain. He used Judas and turned him into a villain to try to get his worldly dynasty set up. That's what Jesus really did. But again, Tolson doesn't condemn Jesus, even if he did use or abuse Judas, and if he abused a lot of other people. That seems to be okay. So it seemingly would be okay for me today to selfishly abuse others in order to, to attain my material goals or my uh, prestige goals or whatever they may be. But you very well know, the Bible says, I am to seek first the kingdom of God, not my own kingdom and not my own desires. And what impact has postmodernism had on our view of divinity as a whole? Well, the Bible says we should fear God and keep his commandments, Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. Postmodernism teaches, as David Wells, a Protestant scholar, has well said, listen to him, here's a quote from him, God is a God that we can use rather than a God that we must obey. We have turned to a God who will fulfill our needs rather than to a God before whom we must surrender our rights to ourselves. He is a God for us, for our satisfaction. We transform the God of mercy into a God who is at our mercy. We imagine that he is benign and he will acquiesce as we toy with his reality. End of quote. We can just do about anything we want to do. And regarding his being benign, God being benign, for many decades now we've dealt in the brotherhood with Protestants and with the way they treat God. Some of them at least, not all of them. But some of them say, you know, God is a God of love, and he is, but he's also a God of severity. And they leave off that part. And so he wouldn't punish anybody for anything. Now and, and now we hear that kind of thing more and more from some in churches of Christ. It is an influence of postmodernism, by the way. We saw some of those examples this morning. For example, one brother in the Nashville area has openly taught 
that even if you divorce and remarry, it doesn't make any difference how many times, and you do it against the scriptural teaching, you can still stay with that partner you never should have taken. And as we noticed this morning, he calls that redemptive grace. You would be allowed to stay in that relationship, so you manipulate God to come around to your point of view. You change God's attitude. But specifically here, what has postmodernism done to our view of the Bible? Some years back, George Barna did a poll. You know, he's the religious pollster. And he published the results of that poll about absolute truth. And he showed that 72% of young Americans, you've got a lot of young Americans here right in front of me, and I've appreciated your being up front. And I appreciate your stand for truth, and you're trying to do what's right. But we need to realize in what world our younger set is living. Young Americans as a whole, age 18 to 25, according to Barna, do not, 72% of them do not accept that there is any absolute truth, according to that poll. Well, you go take the Bible and present it as an absolute truth, you can understand what happens in many cases. No wonder they do that because their university professors in the public universities don't believe that there can be an absolute truth, most of them. And one of the major influences in the public university is what we're talking about, postmodernism. As Dennis McCallum says, postmodernism rejects what it calls metanarrative religious or philosophical system. Did you get that one? Metanarrative. One of those intimidating terms again that makes you think if you don't analyze, they've got to be smarter than you are. And what does metanarrative mean? Well, McCollum says it means any religious tradition or philosophical system that commits acts of cultural tyranny by promoting the fiction, please get the word, by promoting the fiction that all knowledge reduces to a set of universally applicable truths. End of quote. Surely it will not escape the mature Christian that the Bible does claim to be the truth to which all men of all ages should bow. It is a set of universally applicable truths, if it is anything. And if it is not that, we need to throw it away and expose it. But postmodernists say to accept that is to commit, did you get the quotation a minute ago, is to commit tyranny. Tyranny is a cruel use of power. And if you talk about universally applicable truths, they say you are committing that kind of tyranny against cultures that aren't based on the Bible. And I reply, they ought to be based on the Bible because God created them too. They say you embrace a fiction when you advocate one set of universally applicable truths. In fact, postmodernists say that the Bible is, quote, are you listening carefully? This is from a postmodernist source. I'll give you the website if you want it. The Bible is a collection of odd stories, a multi-voiced tapestry that can be interpreted in a myriad of ways, end of quote. And so for the postmodernists, God is a God we can just sort of manipulate as we please. And that's true at least partially because he has an unsure word that may be a truth among many, among many other truths, but certainly would never be the truth. But now how does all of that relate to what we, the movement we hear so much about in the religious world today, that is the community church movement? Surely it hasn't escaped you how many community churches are springing up every place. 
They're all around us. How did the community church originate anyway? While I was in the in Chicago area in the 1980s, doing finishing up my doctorate there, I visited the building of the newly constructed Willow Creek Church near Chicago. You may or may not know it was founded by a fellow by the name of Bill Hybels in 1975. It has now grown to where, I haven't checked it just recently, but a couple of years ago, they were having 20,000 each weekend. It was begun by sending pollsters door to door. And in that particular area of Chicago, probably 80% were unchurched, and they went, went to all the unchurched, and they asked them, what do you want? What kind of church would you attend? You're not attending any church. What one would you attend if we created one? That's the way he decided what they would do. He found, they said, we want a church that doesn't ask for money. Now later, if you find something where they're really entertained and they really like what's going on, they'll give lots of money. But they don't want anybody preaching on it or asking for money. Number two, we don't want a church that's boring. Number three, we want a relevant church. You can imagine how subjective that is. And number four, I find this one particularly interesting. We want a church that does not make us, quote, feel guilty. So Hybels decided to build what they wanted. Here's a quote from his website, from him. We decided, he says, to build, quote, a contemporary church in an atmosphere of glitz and entertainment while preaching a feeling-oriented gospel of codependency, recovery, self-love, and unconditional acceptance where believers could thereby be comfortable in God's presence, end of quote. Peter Jennings, before he died, you remember the news anchor man. He was a skeptic. Before he died, he went to interview them. He interviewed Hybels and he asked him, this sounds a lot like, more like theater than it does anything that has to do with the Bible or church. And he said, yes, it is. But he said, that's what people want. My comment, by the way, my first comment about unconditional acceptance where they feel presence, they feel comfortable in the presence of God, it's a different God. Because my God sent his son preaching, except ye repent, you'll all likewise perish. Luke 13, 3. Does that indicate some guilt somewhere, maybe? You say, well, Edwards, surely you're talking about things that have not influenced the Church of Christ in any way, have they? Don't you believe it for a minute. Ten years ago, I was in a meeting in a fairly good-sized church in a city in Missouri that will remain unnamed. And I had a lady come in that wanted to talk with me. She came from another congregation, the largest congregation in that city of the Church of the Lord. She wanted to talk with me after services. She said, I've got a big uh, ethical problem. She, I, she said, I'm secretary for so-and-so Church of Christ. It's the largest church in this city. And she said, would you believe that every week Bill Hybel's sermons come to the preacher in my congregation? I take them out. I read them. I give them to him. I put him on his, the sermons on his desk. And he preaches them almost word for word, even down to the illustrations as if they had happened to him. She said, what do I do? Well, very briefly, I told her I'd go to him and tell him he had three weeks to go to the elders and tell him himself. And if he didn't, I would. 
I said, I know you may lose your job, but you can't put up with that kind of thing. Oh, yes, we've been influenced. Another model of the community church is Saddleback Valley Community Church in Lake Forest, California. The founder is Rick Warren. You've heard of him quite a bit in recent times, a renegade Southern Baptist. He founded it in 1980. Quite a few of the things he says would not fit with Baptist doctrine either. They now have over 16,000 in attendance each weekend, the last I knew, I haven't checked just recently. Warren's philosophy of doing church is outlined in his book called The Purpose Driven Church, published in 1995. My wife and I were on vacation in Oklahoma City, I don't remember, maybe six or seven years ago. Went into a church that used to be a solid church of Christ. I had an, a, a, a friend of mine who had been an elder there. And I wondered why I didn't find Warren there at all. He was gone. And the first thing you know in class, they're teaching the purpose-driven church of Rick Warren. That's their study material. And by the time I got into the worship service, they had 13 people up here in a praise team, seven of them women, leading the congregation. We didn't participate that Sunday. We left and went elsewhere. Yes, it's influencing us too. There are many other community churches springing up everywhere. Memphis, Nashville, Chattanooga, certainly in Montgomery. Even little old Henderson, even though we're only about 6,000 people, we've got a, a community church out on the highway, on Highway 45, for those of you who know anything about Henderson. And it is continuing to influence us in a lot of different areas. By the way, one brother of ours has written an article just recently. He went and did some study, and he believes it's influencing us. This was published, this study was published in March of 2006. He says, one might be surprised how some of our young people apply the ideology of postmodernism to moral issues. He had gone and studied on some of the websites that young people are on, knew some of them in a large city area. And he said he found quite a number of them that were advocating, yes, you must be baptized to be saved, but at the same time they would turn around and booze it up and even brag about it on their website, boozing it up and smoking pot and other such immoral things, while accusing others of being narrow-minded because they wouldn't say accept their truth on baptism. Now I know any, whether they're websites or computers or television or whatever it is, or telephones, they can be used for good or for evil. But parents, I would suggest that we carefully look at what our young people are doing and who they're interacting with, particularly in their younger years. Not very long ago, there was a man who had been placed up in nomination for an elder in a particular congregation where I was. And one of the members of the church had run across his website and in the website, the son of that candidate for elder had been talking about curse, using curse words and dirty vulgarities on his website. And one of the members objected to his being an elder, rightly so, because of what he was doing and the parents didn't know anything about it. Then there is, as we've already mentioned, the post-doctrinal looseness, the post-modern doctrinal looseness, where there are lots of truths. In Chattanooga a few years ago, a certain Marty Lloyd said this, a quote from him. 
I grew up in the Church of Christ, attended a Church of Christ college, but about five years ago, a group of Christians who were meeting at a home at the time felt, get it, felt the need to start a non-denominational fellowship that was contemporary in worship and whose focus was on Jesus, end of quote. Likewise, in the March-April 2000 issue of Christian Chronicle, there appeared a feature article which was somewhat favorable to the movement, that is, the community church movement, and listed several churches of Christ that have become community churches, generally saying they've done it to remove growth barriers because the church of Christ has too much baggage. In fact, Max Lucado's Oak Hill Church dropped the phrase Church of Christ. They used to be the Oak Hill Church of Christ. They dropped Church of Christ in the year 2003 and became a community church, giving as the reason for it they wanted to remove a growth barrier. They felt they could grow more. Not all growth is good, my brothers. You know what cancer is? It's very fast, rapid growth. Not all growth is good. Another example of postmodernistic thinking is seen in a teacher at one of our Christian universities associated with Churches of Christ. He wrote in New Wineskins, January to April 2006, with obvious approval, the following thing. By the way, in that particular Christian university, about 70% of the young people are from Churches of Christ. I know the university very well. And here's what he said about the young people attending that particular Christian University. It is not unusual in a particular week for, or a typical week for our students to attend a Monday night instrumental praise worship at a local church of Christ, a Tuesday night ecumenical teaching session at the First Baptist downtown, Wednesday night church at a fairly traditional church of Christ, and Thursday night Taizé worship. That's kind of an ecumenical type thing with repetitious songs and prayers, somewhat like a mass, and comes from Catholic background. Or they may attend a Presbyterian church, all before going home on the weekend to their parents' Church of Christ, where many think they are the only Christians. Gary Holloway, a professor at that university, wrote that in Wineskins, January, April 2006. So they have one truth on Monday, another truth on Wednesday night, and another one the next day. Now, how does all of that, this community church talk relate to postmodernism. <clears throat> well, did you notice that Hybels began the first one in 1975 with a poll, what do you want? What would your truth be if you could just select your truth? And he gave them what they wanted. Did you notice that our brother in Christ, Marty Lloyd of the Church of Christ in the Chattanooga area, listened to him, quote, wanted a church that was contemporary in worship. He wanted his truth. Neither of them went to the Bible to find out the truth. They had their own truth. That's a form of postmodernism. It is an influence of postmodernism. But when the truth is known, we come to our fourth point. The acceptance of God's word will cause us to reject postmodernism in all of its forms. The well-informed Christian knows that the Bible, contrary to what postmodernists say, though written over a span of 1,500 years by 40 different writers, displays a grand unity of purpose. It has one central theme, the reclaiming of fallen man, man who has fallen into sin and has lost his relationship with God. This unity and its fulfilled prophecy show that the Bible is not just a group of disconnected stories. 
It contains a universal message, Matthew 28, verses 18 and following. It has been tested, Proverbs 30, verses 5 and following. It will always be around, Matthew 24, verse 35 and following. And in fact, it will judge all men at the end of time, John 12 and verse 48. Jesus said, he that rejects me and accepts not my word has one that judges him. The word which I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Therefore, when a Bill Hybels or even one from the Church of Christ like Marty Lloyd says we should or shouldn't do a certain thing, the Christian who is mature will say, how does what you're saying relate to the Word of God? In fact, evaluate with me what Hybels and Rick Warren and others like him say in light of the Word. When I think of what they say, I'm reminded of what Paul wrote in Colossians 2 verses 8 and following. See, it, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells. Well, the community church says, first of all, don't ask for money. Paul didn't know that. He did. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, among other places. They say, Bill Hybels and others, they say, don't make a man feel guilty. But Jesus, as we saw, did, except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. And Paul did too, 1 Corinthians 5. He even had them withdraw from an incestuous man at Corinth. They say you must agree to women elders. Willow Creek has them. But Paul didn't. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 and following, and Titus 1. They say it's okay to use any type of music. So Willow Creek uses a 10-piece rock band. But Paul limits his instruction to one type of music, singing, as we saw this morning, Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16. They say have a senior pastor, executive pastor, and a chief financial officer. That's in their bylaws, and by the way, it's all in the book that I mentioned earlier. And they say that the leaders of their church have no particular qualifications. They just select who, kind of they, who they kind of want to. But Paul says we are to have elders and deacons, Philippians 1 verse 1. And that with specific qualifications, the ones we've already mentioned in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. They say baptism is just a symbol of salvation. Warren says that in his material, and I have it documented. But Peter says differently. He says baptism is for the remission of sins, Acts 2 and verse 38. Undoubtedly, they have been influenced by postmodernism. And they have left biblical teaching. I say it kindly, but firmly. They are in error. But now just a moment before we close this lesson. Let's talk just very briefly about how to effectively teach those who are postmodernists. I'm talking about people who fully embrace postmodernism, full-blown postmodernism. Poe, in one of his books, talks about who they are and what their profile is. And he says, rightly so, that postmodernists generally do not know Christianity. They haven't known it and rejected it. They simply are ignorant of it. Yes, they have a lot of Bibles all around them, but they've never read it very much at all. Yes, they've heard of Christianity, certainly, but they have not known it, not in its true form, not from reading the Bible and not from others around them. We must instruct them, therefore. We saw this morning that the, the first century church taught and taught and taught, and they were threatened for teaching, and they went ahead teaching anyway even in the face of being imprisoned. 
We need to teach men around us about the facts of the gospel, the wonderful facts. We need to teach men about the promises that God has given, the beautiful promises of relationship with Him and a home in heaven. And yes, we need to teach men about His commands too. There is hope that will attract them if they are taught that. We must teach, teach, teach. Further, the full-blown postmodernist is generally turned off by institutions. It's probably good to notice that. And attracted normally by relationships. Poe suggests that on page 34 of his work about postmodernism. When you say church, the postmodernist thinks of the Catholic-type hierarchy and the fellow in the robe and that has very little relationship to real everyday life and he has a mitre and so forth. He thinks of a hierarchy. He does not think of an elder or a bishop in the church as being one who works among others and has an influence among others and has a godly family that he has taught. They think of a robe bishop and they have no use for that kind of institution. And we do have excellent opportunities to show the postmodern ship, the postmodernist good relationships that is ours to Christ. What a wonderful thing it is to know you've been forgiven through the blood of Christ. What a wonderful thing it is to emulate Him. It makes me a more happy individual here and it will you as long as you do it. And we need to show Him, the postmodernist, a good relationship with our brethren in the churches of Christ where we worship. In teaching, it might be good with the postmodernist if you're dealing with a real postmodernist to not start with the church. Now, you have to get there. You can't be faithful to Christ and leave the church out. But it might be better to start with your relationship to Christ and what it means to you and how you got into that relationship. And then later, as he comes to respect Christ, show that respecting Christ means respecting his body also. In conclusion, God help us to so walk as to attract even the postmodernists to the wonderful God which we serve. So the postmodernist will see, I love these words of this song, God is the fountain whence 10,000 blessings flow. To Him my life, my health, and friends, and every good I owe. He fills my heart with joy, my lips attunes for praise, and to His glory I'll devote the remnants of my days. Likewise, may God help us to effectively teach His wonderful word of life and teach people what a wonderful document we have in the Bible. Hartzler has written about the Bible, a light in the wilderness of sorrow, a lamp on the weary pilgrim way, and it, it guides to the bright eternal morrow, shining more and more into, unto the perfect day. God help us to teach that word to other men who are drowning in their sins and headed for the wrong place of separation from God eternally. If you're here this afternoon and you need to come back to the Lord, come back repenting and praying, if you've never obeyed the gospel, you need to accept the most wonderful message that's ever been given. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel means good news. It's good news that you can relate to God properly and live a fulfilling life here and have an eternal life with God in heaven eternally. To do that, you need to come with faith in your heart, penitent of sin, repenting as Jesus taught as we've already seen, confessing then Jesus as the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you have not done that,